Hi, this is Rupert G from the Hello Deli, and you're currently watching the Letterman Podcast. La 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 Welcome once again to the Letterman Podcast. My name is Mike Chisholm. Uh, I am the host of this endeavor, and it is a delightful post indeed. I am very excited to be here. That's what you get whenever you see me. You get excitement because I get to talk to people who were somehow involved or affected by the world of David Letterman and company. And what a world it is. What a rich world it is. Uh, so much fun. We're in having a, a blast with this endeavor. Uh, hopefully it continues to grow and expand and lead to all sorts of adventures and insights um, that we had no idea were going to happen. Uh, this week's example of our show certainly has that. Um, I have uh, the pleasure of talking to Gabe Abelson tonight. Gabe Abelson was David Letterman's um, head monologue writer from 1998 to 2001. There was a time where Bill Sheft, um, and I, I don't, to be perfectly frank, I'm going to, I'm going to full disclosure here. I don't know how many monologue writers, uh, head monologue writers Dave had. Uh, throughout his career. Um, what I will say is with The Late Show, Bill Sheft, uh, a guy I would very much like to talk to, but at the end of the day, uh, we'll see what we'll see what happens. Sheft uh, may come on the show. I have hope. The reason I have hope is Sheft wrote the foreword for The Last Days of Letterman, um, and I have it on good authority that uh, my good friend Scott Ryan had to ask Sheft a couple of times, and uh, he got no's at first. Um, so I'm hoping that Bill Sheft will come on here and give us some uh, some fun tales uh, that aren't tales out of school that he will be able to tell to talk about um, the very unique position of head monologue writer for David Letterman. Now, that being said, he did it for a few years. Um, and then he took a break and Gabe came in and took over in 98, uh, I believe August, uh, late August, early September of 98. And then he did it all the way until I believe the very end of 2001. Uh, Gabe has done a bunch of other things in his career as well. Uh, and we talk a little bit about that. He also, he wrote for the tonight show and, um, a few other, uh, notable uh, things that he has done. Um, a fascinating conversation. The, my favorite part about this entire experience is, uh, becoming friendly with these folks and actually building a relationship with these folks. Uh, Gabe and I have talked, uh, since, and um, I, I just uh, am really excited to know him. Um, he's one of those guys that likes to give back. And I, I mean, it's a, I'm a, if you've listened to all of these or watched all of these shows, you know that there are a lot of folks who worked for Dave and company, uh, I guess, were, who were the company of Dave and company. And they just are so generous with how they built uh, others up. And, and I really, really liked that about the culture uh, within the pants world. And it seems to be all of the eras were like that. Uh, Gabe, certainly no exception. We, you know, we talk about Steve O'Donnell. I love Steve. Um, boy, uh, what a legacy that guy was a part of. He just finished up a, a run at NYU. Uh, teaching comedy writing class, uh, a comedy writing class. Gabe does the same thing. Gabe actually has, for those who are in the uh, California area, um, Gabe actually teaches. So not only does he give, you know, generously of his time uh, from performing and, and, and doing the things that he does, uh, 
but he actually wants to give back and to, and to, and to be part of projects like this, what we're doing here, but he also teaches. He's got a, he's got a class coming writing for late night. Um, and he does this at flappers uh, through flappers comedy, uh, club. So go to flapperscomedy.com. His next class is actually going to be, uh, January 23rd through February 20th. And if I lived in Cali, I would be doing this just to, just to have FaceTime with Gabe. He is a phenomenal guy. I use, I don't know if there's a word I use more than phenomenal on this show. Um, it's just the level of how I feel for things. I'll, I'll get a thesaurus out and try and find some, uh, some synonyms for it. But um, I got to tell you, um, I'm just really blessed to talk to people uh, like Gabe. We had a phenomenal conversation. See, there it is again. Sorry about that. I'm going to do my best. Uh, I, <laughs> at least I'm noting it, right? We had a uh, just a delightful conversation. There we go, where we talked about uh, some of the stories that he had, how he got the job. He talked about that, the interview, um, coming in to, you know, take over for Bill. Um, that's a tall order, it really is. And 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 we got into a whole bunch of things. This is a long form show. I'm not breaking it up into two parts, partially because we got a whole bunch of guests that are coming and and and. I mean, I don't want to stretch them out too much. I want, when they come and record, I don't want them to be, you know, a month or two later. And we got a whole bunch coming. So, uh, you know, I hope you enjoy the long form. The numbers seem to uh, reflect that people are ready to do a deep dive when they come in here and, 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 and hear a Letterman podcast. I appreciate that very, very much. Because at the end of the day, I think a lot of the depth of these conversations, I think about Jeremy Weiner, um, you know, some real cool things started happening after an hour and 10 minutes. Same thing with Gabe. I mean, Gabe and I get into uh, later on into the, into the, into the show, we start talking about the culture of standup these days. And, and um, I just uh, in, in, in 2023 and how it's different. And, and, and I get some really good opinions from him uh, about that. And, and I mean, at the end of the day, his opinions are nothing short of expert world-class. Um, I feel like with many of these guests, I'm sitting under a learning tree. Uh, Gabe is certainly one of those guys, but he is a learning tree that is entertaining. It's all get out. Gosh, some of the stories that we tell, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you right here. He reads something on here. There was a joke that he, uh, um, gave to David Letterman in one of his monologues. Um, and it wasn't written by him. It was written by, uh, by two of Carson's boys. And we'll, we'll talk about those guys a little bit here, but anyway, the joke was so funny to David Adam doubled over in laughter and to the point where they actually had to ask the boys, um, how they came up with part of the joke. They sent a fax deconstructing the joke and 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 kind of explaining the joke um in its bare bones skeletal form uh the justification of it and uh gabe read that fax to us on this show and he's never done that for another podcast he's been on other shows before in fact oh before we get i wouldn't even know gabe if it wasn't for jay ryan so shout out to my buddy my brother from another mother uh jay ryan thank you so much for i love being in partnership with you uh more to come on that everybody um and uh, I just appreciate you you introducing me to some of the amazing people that are in your in your world and in your circle. Gabe being one of them. Um, yeah, we just have some really really fun times here. Uh, anything else to note before we just get right to it? Uh, I mean, it's a long conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, lots of good stuff here. We want to provide uh, you know lots of content here. 
uh, at the Letterman podcast. Oh, you know what? There is one more thing I'm going to say. Um, the integration uh, of Don Giller into this show um is 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 being honed right now and and it was a delight to have don real time uh spout out some cool facts and things like that that i could then reintegrate back into the conversation with gabe and 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 not just for fact checking but also for um you know uh, for, for for trivia's sake it certainly makes the broadcasts that much uh more enriched i appreciate don like you wouldn't believe i uh man the fact that that he is uh uh taking part in some of these shows um is is nothing it's, it's it's fantastic to me i'm just gleefully delighted hopefully uh as our community grows here that uh gleeful delight can spread its way around and everybody will experience it as well we've got a lot of really cool things coming we've got some more community shows that are going to be added in those will come out on tuesdays i think uh whereas the the letterman podcast uh will be every friday the community shows where where people can um talk about some of the experiences that they've had we've got one that we're recording tomorrow um, very cool story of a couple of guys who made it to one of the very last late shows. Uh, we've got somebody who uh, was featured on Stupid Petrix who's going to be coming on the show as well. Uh, lots of good things happening in the world of the Letterman podcast. I could not be more grateful. Uh, and I guess that's it right there. Um, so for those who really enjoy Gabe, I'm going to say it again. Uh, his comedy class, flapperscomedy.com. It starts uh, January 23rd. Reach out to him. He, he offers private coaching, that kind of stuff as well. Uh, you have a speech or something like that? You want some help from one of Dave's uh, only head monologue writers ever? It's available. These guys love to give back. These guys love to teach. Guys and gals uh, love to enrich the lives of others. I'm going to stop now because you're not here to see me or listen to me. You're here to see or listen to Gabe Abelson right here on the Letterman Podcast. Um, okay, so yeah, so that was on D-Day or Dumpster Day as a lot of the staff called it. Um, that is a, that was a casualty and somebody rescued it and held on to it. And, uh, when I, as I started becoming friendly with a lot of these former staffers, um, they started showing things like, you know, one of them sent me the, uh, the, the book there and, uh, a few jackets and things like that. And, and, oh, and great. yeah, somebody came forward and was like, Hey, I've got this bridge and it's literally just been sitting in mothballs for seven years. I don't know what to do with it. And I'm like, I, I've got a place for, for sure. Amazing. Great. <laughs> um, I am so grateful, Gabe, that you have uh, you have come out to do this. And, and I, I can't wait. I've got a million questions for you. Um, the first question I have for you is, uh, did you always have the performer bug? Because yes, head monologue writer, all that for Dave. We're going to get into that like crazy. But you're also a performer now and a really I've... good one. Were you always one? Thank you. I auditioned, I won't even say how old I was, let, let's just say a child. I auditioned at the Improv, oh my God, uh, 48 years ago, in 1974. And oh. I was obviously way too young to get into the club, but not too young to get on stage. And I stood on the line actually with Fred Stoller. No, I, I actually, growing up, I grew up on 123rd Street between Broadway and Amsterdam, two blocks away from George Carlin. And his mother used to sit downstairs on the public bench there. And I would sit there and this old lady would tell me stories about her son, George. I had no idea who it was. And then when I got to be 14 and I learned about Carlin's album, I put the whole thing together. Carlin 
became my favorite comedian anyway. But but then you know the tie-in and the picture the picture in class clown. I look down my block. I see the same Riverside Church. And so over the course of my career, I'd done stand-up with all his contemporaries, with Robert Klein and David Brenner. I'd, and I'd never worked with Carlin. Uh, so years later, 15 years into my stand-up career, I was doing Caroline's Comedy Hour for A&E as a stand-up. Yep. I said to the, uh, the producer, she just worked with Carlin. I said, you know, I've never written ever, a celebrity or comic, I've never written a letter, but I, I just have to tell him about knowing his mom and knowing some of the guys in the neighborhood he knew. She said, here's a post office box. I wrote to him, forgot about it. Two months later, my wife comes running into my office. Gabe, Gabe, George Carlin's on the phone. I'm like, holy shit. And so I'm, I get on the phone with him. We talk for about two hours about the neighborhood. And, and it ended up coming full circle because about two years later, when I got on Letterman, I finally met him for the first time. Wow. Uh, so why do I mention that? What a long story for something we're not even going to talk about. No, well, have, it's, 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 that's okay. We're going to keep going. That's on what got me into performing. I there you always go. wanted to be a comic. I yep. don't know why I never thought about writing monologue. I guess it was never a talent that I thought I had because I'd been working on stand-up for so long. And I was doing audience warm-up in 1994 for Politically Incorrect when they were on Comedy Central in New York as okay. a comic. And I said to the EP you know, what happens if I have an idea for Bill for a monologue joke? He said, well, you know, we have a fax team. It's kind of a thankless job. You'll be writing 20 jokes a day in the hopes of selling one for 50 bucks. And Bill only does six jokes. And we look to our staff first. So I thought, oh, what the hell, I'll try it. And I tried it. And the very first night I tried monologue writing, half of the monologue was mine. Three out of the six jokes. Whoa, how did that feel? It was more exciting than any moment that it handed up to me. Handed, uh, happened in stand-up in 16 years of doing it. Uh, 14 years. And you're that. not exaggerating when you say that. You were you got a no. rush from having your stuff said through that, that voice uh, and hearing the laughs and the reaction, but being able to do it, you know, kind of third party. It was a different kind of rush than when you were on stage and you'd be hearing Completely it. Completely different and much more satisfying. People said, I used to say all the time, still say, you know, aren't you, were, wasn't it tough as a comic for so many years to hear Letterman do your jokes? What are you kidding me? I'm a nobody. He's the person I worship. He's getting out to millions. I'm getting out to 200 at a time if I'm lucky, you know. Um, so, uh, no, that didn't bother me. So, in any case, that happened and the business humbles you quickly. I thought, this is what I'm meant to do. The next night, nothing in the monologue. Next night, nothing. But then all of a sudden, it was two, then one, then three again, then two. And after only a couple of weeks, they said, we want to put you on retainer, meaning we're not giving you a staff job. You've never worked in TV, which is ironic because yep. that is the job, the staff job, eventually, that did bring me out to L.A., was getting on staff when they were on ABC, when it was a much bigger show, actually. So yep. they said, we'll put you on retainer. I think it was like 400 a week to send 20 jokes a day. And I loved it. I was, I was a lazy stand-up. I had nothing to do with my daytimes. And and, uh, and and it was just this thing. And then all of a sudden, when they moved to L.A., when they got the deal on ABC, yeah. they ended the facts, New York, New York factors. I don't know why, but whatever, they ended it. And I happened to be doing a one-nighter uh, as a stand-up with the uh, late wife of uh, Bill Sheft, who is monologue writer for almost all the years at Letterman. And I said, and I knew Adrian very well. And I said, yeah, yeah I, I just, you know, I'm not writing for Politically Incorrect. What do you think of these? You know, you think I could maybe write for Letterman? She looked at him. She said, call Bill, who I knew from stand-up. She said, I can't make any promises. I called Chef. He said, send him to me. I sent him. Same thing happened. I'll put you on the facts list, facts yep. team. 
these are really funny, you know, because you have to have a limit on the facts team. It's the only show where there was just one monologue writer on staff that was Bill Sheff. And the boys are two guys who wrote for Carson, Mulholland Barry. Mulholland Barry, yeah, yeah. No one else on the show, none of the other 12 writers had anything to do with the monologue, even Joe Toplin at that time. Oh, that's Not while I was there. It was just me and the factors. And that's how Bill sort of created that department. And, you know, Dave wanted it as close to the way as Bill had it. You know, um, they're best friends. Yep. And so um, uh, I can tell you about that, too, about my interview, something that was very interesting. Absolutely. Uh, OK, so, um, yeah, please do. But anyway, so the same thing happened. After a month, he said, we want to put you on retainer. It was more money than politically incorrect because that was non-union at the time on Comedy Central. It isn't after uh, Comedy Central is all union now. Yeah. Um, and it was more money. And I knew that Bill was the only monologue writer to work on the show. So I never I knew there would be no room for me there. And yet I had no master plan of, OK, let me put a packet together for Conan then or anything like that. I just never planned in my career. And out of nowhere, one day, Chef calls me up. He says, I'm leaving the show to write a book. Would you be interested in my job? And it was like one of these things where I remember exactly where I was standing, what I was wearing, what room I was in. You know, it was one of these. And he said, I'm not going to guarantee it. We have five retainer guys, but yeah. you stand a good chance. You know, you're a stand-up. Uh, and, um, and uh, you know, Dave just really likes your stuff. So I have a couple of stories about that interview that are hilarious. One of them is probably too long, but in any case. None of this is too long. This is long form, and we love this stuff. So you, you, no, you open up as much as you I've want. I've never told on podcasts also. Um you know, okay. Uh, Before you get there, what year are we I talking here? Just to give some context to the viewers. Okay, again. Uh, what year would this have been? Just to give some context. Okay, here. so I started in '97 and ended at the end of 2001. Okay, I, I started writing for the show. I think in '96, '95 or '96, but that was as a uh, retainer, as a factor, then retainer, and then staff writer in '97. Yeah. And you were living in LA at the time as a factor. No, no, no. I was a New Yorker. That's what I was living okay. in. The same place that I grew up in, in, in White Harlem, as George Carlin. So you never Harlem. even moved out to L.A. when politically incorrect. You stayed in. OK, I gotcha. I gotcha. Because I wasn't a staff writer. So there was no right. reason for me to move out. I had a family with two very young kids at that point. I yep. wouldn't move out to be a factor. I, I don't even think they had the facts program anymore at that point. But in any case, you know, I didn't even move out when I got politically incorrect as a staff writer. I waited for two years because you never know. How long a show is going to last? And as it turned out, Bill, that show did get canceled about a year into my tenure there. Then yeah. I went to Kilbourn. Then I went to um, um, uh, uh, Tom Green, where I did some of the work I'm 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 happiest with in my career, actually. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And then, boy, Tom Tom's my closest. I would I was about to say in L.A., but he moved back to Canada. Tom's probably my closest buddy in the world. So. Okay. So before we get, this is an aside, cause obviously, you know, Canadian here as well. So uh, Tom green, I'm, I'm pretty sure he blew up here and then blew up down there. I think, I think it was some of the things that he was doing up here, the antics and things like that. He was on, yeah. And I'm sure, you know, well, Rogers cable. Absolutely. Yep. And he was on Rogers cable and, uh, and, and an MTV executive saw, you know, all these pranks he played on his parents and, and, you know, brilliant stuff and very Letterman-esque just to the next level and with a with a Gen X flair to it. Well, what was, you know, if you think about Tom Green, there would not be 
Jamie Kennedy experiment. There would not be punk. There would not be jackass. Those are not shows modeled after Candid Camera. Those are shows modeled after Tom Green. And the thing is, unlike with Jackass, Tom Green never did any mutilation or scatologic. Well, no. On the microphone. That was it. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, even even I'm talking about the early stuff that got him famous. It was, you know, those pranks with his parents and Undercutter's Pizza where he would find out how to pizza deliver. I mean, just genius. Genius. Absolutely. Eric Andre totally would be the first to say how much he owes to Tom Green. But I didn't know Tom. You know, I'm I'm why I'm actually not that much of an older generation than Tom, but I am one older generation than him, practically. And I didn't know much about him. And I was writing for a union show, Craig Kilborn, which was produced by Letterman. Yep. And my agent of William Morris said, do you want to interview to be head writer of Tom Green? And I was like, oh, God, that guy who hunts a dead moose or whatever. And I met with Tom and he was one of the most serious people I'd ever met. And he'd spent the past two years every day in the Museum of Broadcasting watching old Steve Allen, Jack Parr, Letterman, Carson shows. That's what he always wanted to be. He didn't yep. want to be that other guy, but it was yep. tougher because now he was getting older and people knew him as that other guy. He was so identifiable yes. as that crazy guy yes. that it was hard for on our show. You know, we did a throwback to the early tonight shows with the light boxes, the whole set and everything. Yep. And that's not who the MTV audience wants. Tom came out in a suit and tie and did a monologue. So, but I'm, no. I, as I said, as far as the work and the originality of some of this, uh, some of my favorite stuff, Oh and gosh, I, yeah. yeah uh, okay, just, so I remember. So in Canada, we have MTV, but our our big music channel, the channel called Much Music, and and uh, when I was 15 years old, Tom Green was in a top 10 Canadian hip hop uh, act. You know, check the OR, organize, organized run. Check, check the, the OR, OR organized the big, run. Yep. Yeah, the big the big single, and and I mean, um, so we watched him kind of come up and start doing these things here, and then there's something about being a Canadian and watching one of your boys or one of your girls go down Absolutely. South and make good down there. Um, you know, we saw it with Jim Carrey, of course, SCTV is one of those things where we're, you know, just infinitely oh proud, the kids in the hall, that kind of a thing. And, and there's that little spin or that little flair to it, Tom, like, I'm, I mean, I'm a lifelong Letterman fan since I was a little kid. I love Tom so much. Cause I felt like he was also a lifelong Letterman fan and decided to do things um, on, on his, uh, in his own language, in his own generation. Um, you know, at the end of the day, Tom was one of the guest hosts of uh, when 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 Dave was off with Shingles, he was one of the guys that guest hosted The Late Show. And, and I just, I and, love and all he, of this. Were you still there at the time when he did that? No, I was with Tom. You were that at that while, point, you're, oh my gosh. That was while we were doing our show and he flew in <laughs> to take over for Dave. And I gave him, I gave him one line that was, I shouldn't say that, but I did. Uh, that was you can the year you can you can say anything you like here you remember the uh it was the outrageous line he uh, he was at the desk he said uh i can't believe i'm sitting at the same desk where drew barrymore flashed david letterman what a lucky guy <laughs> and she was his ex at the time what too right like that's yes yeah yeah she was the, a, so, a recent, so... recent ex at that time yeah perfect that's that's perfect um yeah. Gosh, 
Um, I want him to, it'd be, it'd be fun to watch him go on where I met you was, uh, was with our mutual friend, Jay Ryan, Jay Nicole right. doing the, the cars and comedy show. Uh, you know, he's got that desk in his house, that very desk. Um, it'd be yeah. fun to see Tom sitting at that desk and, and to say a line like that. That's pretty, uh, but at the time, yeah. I mean, that is a phenomenal, I just love that so much. Phenomenal, by the way, is the word you're going to hear the most on, uh, on this show here, because I just love all of this. I'm fascinated by Absolutely. all this. Since I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Since no. this is about Letterman and I'm straying over to Tom, I do. I mentioned the interview and Tom was actually a very interesting um, postscript to that story about interviewing with Dave. Uh, so Bill Sheff tells me before my interview, he says, look, he said, Dave is going to at some point say something to try and throw you off your game. Like out of nowhere, he'll say, do you like red meat? He said, and just know that because he wants to see how you roll with the punches. But right. just know he's going to try and throw you off your game. I said, thanks, Bill. That's a great tip to know going in. I'll yeah. be on my toes. And he never did it. He never asked me anything that was weird. It was a very straightforward thing. We had we had a good laugh. The first thing he asked me was, do you know Mitch Walters and Uncle Dirty? And those were two road comics that were like from his generation, but were still working. And I said, yep. boy, do I, do I know Uncle Dirty? And uh, Mitch Walters and I told, uh, uh, and, and Dave actually lived with Mitch Walters when he was doing stand-up over the comedy store. Wow. He and Mitch and Gary Mule there. But in any case, yeah, I told him we exchanged some stories. And uh, years later, I was telling this to Tom and I was telling him about what Bill Sheff said to me. And he said something so on the money. Uh, right away, I said, you're absolutely right. He said, you were the only stand-up that interviewed for the job, right? I, you know, because I told him about that. He, oh. I said, yeah. He said, so you do realize the Uncle Dirty Witch Walters was the do you like red meat question. That was the litmus test right there. That was it. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. I thought that was really interesting. And then um, after the interview, Dave said something to me. And I... <laughs> Uh, it's funny because no matter who I interviewed, whatever host I interviewed with after working there, yep. the first thing they always said is, what's Dave like? Didn't matter who they were, how big they were. Like Craig, Craig Kilborn, who's produced by Dave, said, yep. you know, what was that interview with Dave like? You know, and then I told him um, when Dave told, when I got the job and, and Dave, you know, sort of gave me a pep talk in the beginning. He said to me, he said, I just want you to know I'm an asshole. I'm going to scream at you. I'm going to yell at you. I'm going to get purple in the face, but just know it's never you. It's always me. And I told that to Kilborn and, you know, he, you could see him absorbing it going, that's just great. He said, I have to remember that. I got to use that because he really should use that. <laughs> but that was just, I thought that was very cool of, of Dave to do that before he even knew me, you know? Um, yeah. I, 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 help me relax you know that part of that part of dave that it's legendary you know the the, the postmortems and things like that um you know the idea that nobody was harder on dave than dave Absolutely. and that would spill out to everywhere um was that instantaneous like when you got there i mean i just look at uh the first 18 months they're beating the tonight show and then a series of unfortunate events gets to the point where uh oh things are trains gone off the tracks and and there's a lot of um what i would call anyway uh frantic experimentation frantic the energy is still you know, chaotic and high and, and trying to get the numbers back. And then at some point there's sort of an admission that, okay, we are where we are. You were kind of there in that place where it was frantic and it was the idea of trying to get it back, that kind of a thing. Um, 
I guess the question would be is, was there joy in that job or was it just turned up to 11 high intensity the entire time and and it was really uh, a kind of a boiler room? Well, keep in mind, um, uh, like I said, I was like my own fiefdom separate from the rest of the, I was not in the writer's room for any of the rest of the show. I did not you know, I would, I was going to say fraternize with them. I, I just didn't, you know, they were a, a group on their own. I was just off in this one, one place. So who was head writer um, at the time at that point? The head writer, I was there for three head writers. Okay. Uh, Young, who went on to write for the Simpsons and produce for the Simpsons. Rodney Rothman, who yep. won uh, the Oscar, I think, for the Spider-Verse movie. Yep. Um, And the Stengels. Okay. Yeah. So I was there for all three as head writers. Um. And uh, uh, I'm trying to think of what your last question was. Did you corroborate with them at all, or were, was it was it separate not islands completely? No, not at all. And in fact, because the model, they didn't really have any, they didn't have much FaceTime with Dave. Everybody just kind of put their stuff under his door, and then they would see him, you know, at the, in rehearsal. And in fact, after a while, it was just right to the show. There wasn't even any more rehearsal. But the monologue was so important to Dave. I got to spend an hour with him and. Uh, Inky Mendez, a cue card guy, every yep. day for an hour going over the jokes. So that's what I was going to say. You asked me about the tension and the atmosphere. Keep yes. in mind, this was my very first job in television and arguably to this day, my biggest job in television. I mean, in 1997, head monologue writer for Letterman, if you're a late night writer, that's the gig you want. That's the yeah. show you want, you know. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. A late night joke writer. Ratings uh, don't matter at that point. You're on the coolest show on TV. You know, and I and I went to the and every year I was there, we won best show every year, all five years. And we were nominated every year for best writing. But it was after the period where they won writing every year. So it was like frustrating because like, how do you win best show and not best writing? And um, but, uh, you know, but it was it was it was just great. It was thrilling. It was it was terrifying. You know, it, um, sometimes Dave and I would argue because he wanted total honesty for me about jokes. And I love getting into the weeds. You know, I've been teaching late night writing for, for about 15 years now. Yep. And I just love nothing more than deconstructing it. And we would get into, you know, when once I start talking about jokes, I kind of forget it's David Letterman, you know. Yeah, but that's something that I'm certain uh, from everything that I've learned throughout this process with all the folks that I've that I've met and talked to, um, that is being able to like in the political world, they talk about being able to tell truth to power and and being able to be that guy where you're being flat out honest and it doesn't matter. The emotions that may come up with that honesty don't matter to you, don't matter to him. What really matters is getting into the weeds of it. To me, uh, that sounds like it's something he would have very, very much appreciated. Yeah. 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 And, you know, uh, it's funny because sometimes, uh, you know, what would happen is Dave, I, I would get about whatever, 300 jokes a day. Dave wouldn't want to read more than 50. 300 a day. Well, yeah. I mean, Between so you I and the faxers, right? Have, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I actually didn't have time to write as many jokes as I did when I was freelancing because I had to collate everything, you know. So I would pick the jokes that I thought were strongest and the ones I thought Dave would respond to. Um, if it was anybody else, I would pick just the strongest jokes. But with Dave, I, he's so specific. I would I would try and hone in on what he wanted. And I was praying that I would get the sheets back from Dave with at least um, 
13 check marks because he only did eight jokes and I knew he would cut at least four or five in rehearsal. So I was praying he would check off that many. And every day when I got the sheets back, you know, because it is subjective, I would find jokes that I thought he missed that were stronger than some of the ones he picked. So I would have Tony put those on cue cards and I would go to rehearsal and Sometimes he would say, I didn't pick that one. And I would say, I know, but I think it's good because so-and-so. Sometimes he wouldn't say anything and he would just read it as if it were a joke and pass on it or take it. And if I really felt strongly about a joke, I would argue it once or at the most twice. Right. Uh, the, the Yeah, yeah. The, actually, there was really only one time I, I kept arguing something and that was when I got yelled at and it was... Uh, I can't tell that story. That could be that could yep. be NDA territory there, but yeah, <laughs> um, I, I I appreciate that. And and I mean, um, but we get the picture. Like it's it's some of these stories, and I mean, I've heard lots of them off camera. I, yeah, entertaining and funny, and they're good. They're good, like bar stories or whatever. But for the purpose of the show, like we get it. Like I understand that. Um, the the, the point of how serious and how uh, like. 300 jokes whittled down, you know, to, to, to eight, to 10, to whatever, whatever that is. Um, were you the guy on the other side of the fax machine or were, was, was the writer's assistant, the person that would kind of take fax or jokes and send them either to the writer's room or over to you for monologue? Fax machine was right in my office. They faxed it directly to me. Okay. So here's the question. Um, how much joy was there whenever uh, a joke would come in out of the fax machine from Johnny Carson? He didn't fax to me. He oh, he had a different place he faxed. He, did he fax directly to uh, to Lori or to Mary yes. or uh, yes. okay? But his mother faxed me a happy birthday to Dave. Which Johnny Carson's mom? Brother. No, no, Dave's Dave, mom. Dorothy did. <laughs> yeah, Dorothy. <laughs> oh, that's adorable. You've met Dorothy? Yes. Uh, oh no, not in person. No. Okay. Um. Uh. The facts from the boys. Did I ever tell you that story? That's I didn't my, hear that I story. No. Nope. Here on Christmas. Um, uh, damn, I don't know if I could find it now, but hang on. I it's it's worth it if I can find it. Um, oh, absolutely. I go for it. That's hang on. <laughs> this is the best lesson in comedy anyone will ever hear who's watching. Uh, it's just amazing. I'll tell you. I love hearing this. Um, I can, I can, don't worry. I can fill time while you're, while you're looking for it. I love that so many of you uh, who were in different capacities of writing for the show, um, you know, even from different eras, like I look at Steve O'Donnell, he's teaching what NYU, uh, you know, he's teaching a course on comedy writing, you know, you've done this as well. There've been other, like even Eddie Brill, I mean, he'll put on, he puts on these, you know, stand up. uh, comedy um, workshops and things like that. There's so many examples of, of of folks who worked for pants in some capacity at some point who try and um, and give back and enrich others. It's it just, there's a, so many of you. It's so fascinating to see the culture, um, yeah, of, 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 of teaching and, and growing others. It's very cool. Yeah, I mean, I I love it. It, it I enjoy teaching uh, as much as I enjoy writing, uh, because from you know, I mean, I've been doing stand up, so I've been writing comedy for forty two years, and yep. you just you know, I don't care how strong a comic you are, how weak a comic you are, a uh, comedy writer, you just you know, in forty two years, you pick a lot of stuff up. You're able to deconstruct what works, why it works, or yep. why it doesn't work. And so I love passing that on. 
you know, uh, there are unfortunately to me too many people that are teaching comedy that really shouldn't be that right. that that teach stand up that like work the door at some club, you know, and you just unless you've done this again and again and again, you can't you can't teach it unless you've been in a writer's room. Yeah. Um, you know, you just you're not going to be able to give them all the information they need. I find it um, so funny that. Uh, OK, so let's get back to uh, did you find the facts? I just, I can't believe I can't find the boys. I actually have the original. Can you talk to them for one minute? Cause I think I can go run in the other room and find the original. I absolutely can go get the other one. I think this is, it, this is fun. Um, Gabe Ibelson's going to go grab the original. Uh, and, 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 and I just find it fascinating that um, you've got Johnny Carson um, and, and somebody actually in the, in the, the Facebook group the other day, just asked about this. They asked about uh, what's a faxer. And so the idea of telling, oh, it's freelance joke writers. They come in and uh, they send the jo the show jokes for um, you know consumption, and the show uses them. I think they're seventy five dollars, whatever. I'll ask him about that too. So remind me. Uh, I don't know who can remind me. Don can remind me. Um, yeah, Gabe, how much did you guys? It was that uh, easy. It was that easy. And uh, I actually, someone said I should frame this. This is the original page on blue paper, and you can see the boys. Oh, they were that. Uh, in case folks don't know, watching the boys, uh, uh, Jim Holland and Mike Barry, um, yep. the head writers of Johnny Carson, head writers of the Emmys, the Oscars, the legendary, legendary comedy writers, yes. and they were big contributors to the monologue. But they didn't have cell phones; only called over or the regular phone, <laughs> and they didn't use a computer. If you can see, this is typewritten, a typewritten page, classic, um, old school, and, uh, and signed on the bottom. Fact, on the blue paper, yeah, and signed. So here's the story behind this. December 1997. <laughs> so um, it was a, yeah, Dave did Christmas jokes, obviously around the holidays. And there was a joke of mine about some Christmas special, some Kathy Lee special, some dumb joke. And then after that, and this was the tag, this is the kind of joke that Dave would do that's not from the boys. It's not even like a joke joke, just sort of a tag. Yep. He said, and then tomorrow, it was my show, da-da-da, Kathy Lee has a Christmas show tonight, whatever the joke was, and then the boys' joke is, and tomorrow night, Jerry Springer celebrates the holidays with five teen prostitutes, right? So, um, <laughs> it's so Dave. Nobody else would say that, you know, but it's hilarious. And so, but here's the thing. So, I'm in rehearsal. We go through my joke, you know, and we get to this joke, and Dave just doubles over at the waist. He used to do that sometime if he was laughing really hard and just couldn't stop laughing. And I said, I said, that is pretty funny, but like, I don't know if I've ever seen you laugh this hard. And he looks at me, he says, I just want to know how the boys came up with five teen prostitutes. <laughs> how did they know? And so I call Mike Barry up on his landline and I say, Mike, Dave just wants to know why five teen prostitutes? I'm telling you, it couldn't have been more than three or four minutes later when I hear beep and this thing comes through. <laughs> and I gave it to Dave afterward. And oh my God. By the way, that joke like, was told on oh. December 12th, 1997. Anyway, so. Really? Yep. Uh, this is, I assume this is from Don? Oh yeah. Don, Don threw that in there right there. <laughs> I have to speak to this man. This is ridiculous. So their, <laughs> their letter was the 15th, um, which is interesting because this was the day of. So Mike must have gotten the date wrong. Wow. Okay. Um, 
so or they he responded said, back because if you got if you phoned it in or whatever, yeah, we're going to do the joke or whatever. A couple of days later, they send the fax back saying how they did it or no, why they did. No, no. What I'm saying is, I go to rehearsal with Dave for the show that night. Right. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. And and so he says, "How did the boys come up with this?" The moment I get back to my office, I call the boys. Dave wants to know how you came up with five. And four minutes later, this comes through the fact. So it was the okay. same day, but I'm wondering if maybe it was a, a th well, no, we taped Thursday, we taped two to air one on Friday. So the latest it would be was the 13th. Weird. Oh, this is interesting. Okay, what did the boys uh, say? Uh, anyway, so here's what they say. Uh, so he rewrote the line, tomorrow night, Jerry Springer celebrates holidays with five teen prostitutes. Okay. In answer to Dave's query as to how we came to pick five teen prostitutes, had we picked four or 16 prostitutes, the joke would have sounded like 14 prostitutes or 16 prostitutes, <laughs> thus dulling its meaning and heavy laugh potential. One teen prostitute sounds like a strictly personal encounter, or at the least, a serious break in Springer's regular multi-low-life format. Two or three teen prostitutes still seems a rather skimpy panel and not very funny, yet Seven or more teen prostitutes is too unwieldy a group for Jerry Springer to believably handle on a Christmas special and would undermine any credibility the joke might have with the audience. Thus, five teen prostitutes is the only possible number of teen prostitutes that works. The alternative would not to be the joke altogether, which in retrospect, I strongly recommend. <laughs> I mean, brilliant, just yep. brilliant. Everything you need to know about comedy is right there. That's how much, you know, because people don't get, especially people starting out in stand-up, don't get how every single word, every number is considered. Yes. Every syllable, every letter. You I know, had the, a, the whole thing, the A sound and the C sound and, and the number six, and all of that is true. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, it's every bit as scientific right. as it is emotional. And you I know? guarantee you that when the boys wrote that joke, they didn't think, oh, 14, 16, sounds too much like 14 or 16, instantly just knew. But when yeah. they had to deconstruct it, they deconstructed it in perfect logic. I just think that's great. Uh, it is great. Um, oh, I appreciate this so much. This is so, I'm having a ball talk. Like, I love this stuff so much, Gabe. Thank you so right. much for, oh, oh that's thank so good. You. I want to get back to the interview here. What else in the interview do we need to know here? Uh, well, this is just kind of a, it's a personal thing. So, you know, I studied acting with Lee Strasberg uh, when I went to NYU. Um, I was lucky. One of his last uh, students, actually, uh, you know, the founder of Method Acting. And uh, so it was, I, I, you know, I wanted to do stand up, but I also kind of wanted to act. But I, I went full force into stand-up when I graduated. And the acting, what I did, because I do about 100 celebrity impressions, or I used to, um, I did a lot of radio ads as celebrities. Uh, and I did a couple of nationals, but I never landed a national on-camera commercial until there was an audition uh, when Frazier first went into syndication. Yeah. So that was my first year of uh, Letterman, 97, uh, uh, but right at the interview. And um, they needed a character called Crane Man for the national campaign. It was supposed to be basically Rain Man, but addicted to Fraser Crane instead of Wapner and walks around <laughs> his room going, yeah, 10 minutes to Fraser. Yeah, you know, I can't do the impression yep. anymore. But 
So my agent calls me up and it's all the way downtown. And I'm like, okay, I, this gonna, I'm, I don't know why I'm going on an audition to be Dustin Hoffman. And I get there and sure enough, every guy in the waiting room, I mean, I'm 5'11", everybody else there is like 5'6", yeah. dark hair, big yep. nose, they all look like Dustin Hoffman. And so I'm <laughs> like, uh, why am I here? I might as well go home. And of course, that's the only, the first national on-camera commercial I get in 17 years. I mean, I did the impression a lot better back then, but I look nothing like him. So I go, I go, I think I go on the interview with Letterman. Yep. Um, uh, no, no, I don't have my interview with Letterman yet, but I think Bill has already made the call that he, would you like to have my job? I'm writing, the, uh, I'm leaving the show. Great. I get this commercial. Now to make me look like Dustin Hoffman is a real undertaking. Um <laughs> And I'm not saying I'm better looking. I'm just saying I don't look like the guy. Yeah. Uh, so they, what they had to do is dye my hair jet black and give yep. me a haircut like a mental patient. So the problem is with this color hair, if you try and dye it black, it comes out like orange or red. Yep. Dyed it again, darker red. Again, brown. It was like five times, and I don't know if permanent dye from temporary dye or if I would have had a choice, but it was permanent dye. And eventually they dyed it black and they had to dye my eyebrows black. Now with oh. my light complexion with black eyebrows and I came home and my kids cried. They cried. They were little. They were scared. <laughs> and my wife was like, just don't look at me. You look like the devil. Okay. So <laughs> now I get a call from Bill Sheff. I shot the commercial. I get a call from Bill Sheff. Congratulations. Dave wants you. You got the, oh, no, no, no. I'm getting ahead of it here. I didn't get that far. That would have been fine. He said, okay, so you have your interview coming up on Tuesday. I'm like, oh, man, this is great. And then yep. I said, oh, do me one favor. And I didn't know Letterman personally, but we all knew enough to know the guy's probably pretty eccentric. Yep. Something like that black hair with this face. You know, would he want to spend what I want to spend a, a day with every day looking at this guy? I don't know. <laughs> so I said to Bill Chef, please go down and tell Dave that this is only for a commercial I can't wash it out, but it'll come out in a few months. It's totally not by choice, just really bad timing. He said, you know what? I'm glad you told me that because I will tell him. So I go on the interview. The interview's great. I leave. I go home. And uh, Bill calls me up and I said, how did it go? Bill said the interview went great. You know, Dave told me he thinks he can work with you. He can see this being, you know, uh, you're a, you know, a, a pretty chill guy. He loves your jokes. And he said he just had one thing he was a little puzzled about. And I said, what's that? He said, well, after we were done talking, Dave said, I like the guy, but what the hell is the deal with his hair? <laughs> and I said, Bill, tell me you told him. And Chef goes, told him what? Oh. And I said, no, no, I can't lose this job because of this. I said, please go down there right now. I was in no position to ask Bill for anything, but I said, please, I beg of you. Go down, tell him right now. This would, and he went. Oh my God, the commercial! Yeah, I'm gonna. I'll go down right now. And <laughs> so it, it didn't. It didn't torpedo it, but uh, it came close. It was funny because I had nothing but regret for landing a national commercial at that point. <laughs> so that's my other story. Crane Sorry. man. Crane man. Yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a, a former Letterman writer right now who we're gonna have on the show here soon who's working on the reboot of Frasier right now as a as a staff writer. Oh, great. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, so anyway, okay. So uh, you get the job as you go in there. Um, is it the, is it the circus that never ends immediately? Is it 
is it, uh, you know, kind of, kind of like a roller coaster, like culture shock, like, okay, here we go. You're on the ride. And now we're going a hundred miles an hour. Is that really what it was like? And then the hundred miles an hour fine for most of it, but I would imagine before showtime, it had to be pretty chill. Like, I mean, I, it must've gone very fast to very, uh, intense, like, like the, the I, I can only imagine the atmosphere, I guess is where I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure that out for you. And, and was there an adjustment period or did you take to it right away? And that, yeah, we hired the right guy. Cause right away you were there. Well, I just, I just focused on the job right away. And, you know, yes, there, I saw tremendous pressure, but mostly with the rest of the staff, okay. um, you know, like Dave asking them to do another pass at a top 10, another pass, another pass, another pass. Uh, there was a lot of pressure. And obviously there was tremendous pressure for me. My pressure didn't really start until rehearsal. Okay. Um, um, I, in terms of, well, the pressure was Dave picking enough jokes because yeah. the the biggest, the words I hated hearing the most was we're in a box, meaning we don't have enough jokes. And usually it meant we don't have a closing joke. And we had a closing joke every night, not because of me, but I got so many jokes. There were plenty that could close. And, you know, during the Clinton years, which was most of the time I was there, um, we he would end with a Monica joke after the scandal every night. He would end with absolutely, a yep. That's back when you know you could do that. Now he wouldn't do that. No host would do that. I don't think. I know. Oh no, the the temperature has changed yeah. significantly since yeah. so the culture. And the entire so, culture has shifted. You know, yeah, we're talking a quarter yeah. century ago here. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so I have a story about that that I can't tell. <laughs> it's a great story. <laughs> about literally about being in a box, not having a closing joke and and uh, Monica. But in any case, um, <laughs> so that was stressful because if he said we're in a box at three, I mean, we taped at 530. So yeah. I would have to go back get and call the boys, get another round, call the factors, get another round, put them together again. Some A couple of times I would go back to Dave, he would say we still don't have it. You know, now it's getting like within an hour of taping and it's really very stressful. Uh, but, you know, once it was out on that stage and he was doing the monologue, that was, uh, um, yeah, a, a great relief. And um, I got in earlier than all of the other writers. And I'm not a morning guy because I had to give all my stuff today by 11 or 1130. Um, and I so all of that work had to be done by then. But I got to leave at about I you. Very often I would go back to Dave's office and watch the show with him afterward. Yep. Uh, and that was, you know, that was cool. That was exciting. So I would leave uh, probably seven, now nah, about 7.30 or eight, but the other writers very often stayed till very late. Like, you know, maybe not quite as late as sitcom writers, but very late. Would you be uh, writing the next day's show that night afterwards? I would, I would cheat a bit. I would get a head start. If it was a story that you knew was going to hold. Yep. Um, ab absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, and and I would always encourage the factors to keep track of to watch every monologue to see the subjects that he liked, because he that would, you know. Yeah. Yeah. When the story about, you know, the, in the New York Post, when the story about how New York rats are getting brazen now that they're not just on the subway, they're crossing the street. The fact that the boys started writing brazen rats jokes, he was on that for about two months. Well, and you got refillables then at that point, and and in the time of year, squirrels with nuts, things like that. I mean, well, with nuts, yeah, and, though, well, those could come along anytime. Yeah. You know, it was raining. He was scotch guarding his nuts. You know, uh, whatever. It was oh, no matter what. There was yeah, the squirrel nut jokes. Um, um, but uh, what was the other one I was just talking about? My memory is shot. The the rats. Uh, the rats. 
Yep. So I showed, uh, uh, you know, in my class, I show a few pages of my jokes and I show a few pages of the boys jokes because they're actually one of the few uh, joke writers that didn't need punchlines to their jokes because they were so visual. And this is what I tell everybody that tries to write comedy based on wordplay. Wordplay will never, ever get the laugh that situational or visual comedy will. So um, the boys visually, uh, so for instance, they say, Boy, these New York rats are brazen. I saw one at Rupert G's Deli climbing down a hanging salami with a knife in his teeth. I mean, that's a scene. That's Ratatouille. That's, you know, I mean, that's, that's, I, I used to say to them, you guys have to write an animated feature. These rats are brazen. I saw a rat at the Korean fruit stand feeling the peaches. I mean, <laughs> what, what other comedy writer writes that? It's, it's, it's not an anti-joke, but there's no real punchline. And yet no. it's freaking hilarious. It's funny as anything I could write. You know, New Year's Eve, everybody's partying. I saw two rabbis rolling a keg down Broadway. You know, I mean, just, yeah, I saw a funeral procession stop into 7-Eleven for party ice. Yes. I yeah. Mean, you know. <laughs> and party ice being the, like, it's got to be the party ice. It's like, got to be the party ice. It's got to be, yes, absolutely. No, party ice is like five prostitutes. Exactly. Yes. Like, no yes. the exact right expression. Yeah, it's just. It's brilliant comedy writing. And okay, I'm really glad you bring this up because uh, we've talked about this on the show. Like, um, this is one of those things where, you know, you watch uh, from back of the day, I just think about growing up, you know, um, you think of a Kinnison set or a Carlin set for that matter. And you can go, you hear it on the record and you can go to the elementary school or junior high the next day and you can replicate it to your friends and the laugh is transferable. One of the things that it took me a long time to learn in, in middle school uh, or junior high was that many of Dave's jokes, which would have me doubled over or have me like my, my mind just lit up from humor, the way that only humor can do it. I could not replicate it to my friends because there was no punchline there wasn't a setup a middle and a and a punchline i don't i don't do the mechanics of a joke very well but but when there's a, a beginning a middle and an end you can do it with letterman stuff many times you can't do it because it is yeah. the emphasis on 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 the right amount of syllable it's almost like a haiku like the right yeah. amount of syllables the right word party ice like it has to be party exactly. ice and 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 dave yep. and those who wrote for him were experts in, and that were there's where we go back to the idea of not a stand-up but more a broadcaster or an auteur like a, a wordsmith right. and 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 that was the thing and still is to this day um you know i'll hear words that dave uses on my next guest and there are words that i want to incorporate into my vocabulary exactly. because they're just exactly. the right words you know yeah yeah absolutely and um uh, you know, my favorite joke probably ever in late night was written by the boys and it got absolute silence in the theater. And I know everybody in the industry, certainly in the comedy industry, was at home laughing their ass off. This is this is an anti joke. It was <laughs> silence. He says, uh, everybody is sick with the flu that right now. In fact, the two guys that wrote this joke got sick with the flu, had to go home and couldn't finish it. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard a better, a more clever mind. And I mean, just <laughs> nothing. Crickets. <laughs> All the tourists are like, and then what? Anti no, no. And, and the self-referential, you know, the, yep. the two writers wrote this show. I mean, it's just so perfect. But, you know, for me, I can't write this way. I have a very, a very structured approach to it. 
but the structure is very Letterman. To this day, I write in his voice, and I, I can't, I can't shake it, man. I can't shake it. Um, and and I use this as an example of just you were talking about the structure of a joke. Yep. So the the typical structure of a monologue joke, the, and this is the key that I that I I tell the not I don't mean to keep bringing up my students, but I have to because oh I, please do no bring them up bring them up by I name give them shout outs I don't care I think it, I think about it. Yeah. Um, I always say the biggest pitfall you can fall into, because most of my students are stand-up comics and some veteran stand-up comics, the worst thing you can do is try to think of a funny punchline. The best thing you can do is try to think of an, an association, something related in a completely bizarre and unusual way. When you find the perfect association, the joke writes itself. So the best example that I think I can give is... Uh, uh, and I don't remember everybody's jokes, but a joke of mine, uh, when Clinton got caught with Monica, he hired two spiritual advisors to come and pray with him in the White House. <laughs> so I thought, well, this is a typical empty political gesture. And so I wanted to write a joke about it. So I yeah. knew it was going to be a Monica joke. So right away, I know where I'm going with it. So yeah. uh, I thought, so this is the way a joke gets written. So now I go through this mental Rolodex of spiritual advisors. Okay, what do they do? They uh, wear robes. Well, Monica had the blue dress with the stain. Maybe there's a tie-in, not really. Uh, the wine, the wafer, eating, mouth open. Ah, maybe that could get to, what else? They pray, they're on their knees, bam. There it there's is. the association, the joke is done. Yep. Now all I have to do is create the right framework and not use too many words. So the joke ended up being, President Clinton hired two spiritual advisors to come and pray with him in the White House. Just so we need more people in the Oval Office on their knees. Done. The economy of words on that joke is incredible. And you it's, can see that once knees was there, it was just yep. putting words in the right place, really. What, yep. But so it was not trying to think of something funny necessarily. It was just, what do I associate with spiritual advisors? And that's really how 90% of them are written. And when the perfect, you know, uh, association comes out, so does a joke. Um, um, and, you know, and that's so true. So many jokes. Like there's a joke Dave used to do of mine every Christmas, even after I left the show. For all I know, he was still doing it uh, 16 years later. I don't know. But the joke was uh, it's expensive to buy a Christmas tree in New York. You know, it's 100 bucks. Then it's an extra 50 if you want to tie it to the roof of your car. Oh, no, wait, I'm sorry. That's the deal on a hooker. Uh, <laughs> used to do that every Christmas. He loved the hooker jokes, and he loved that structure of "Oh no, wait, I'm sorry," and then it's something else. And so again, how does a joke get written? I think of tying it. When I saw about this is what it costs tying it to the roof of the car, I'm thinking kinky tying hookers. Bang, there's the joke. So it's about association. And the other thing I just wanted to say quickly about that uh, yeah. on their knees joke is the first way I wrote that joke was just so we need more people on their knees in the Oval Office, which would still get a laugh, but not as big a laugh as putting knees, the punch word last. Right. So instead of in the Oval Office, in the Oval Office on their knees. And what's amazing is I see people that are late night writers that do this for years, and including myself, that will still make the same mistake. You a miss case, the simple thing, the thing, but the, the simple, the simple thing, thing, but like the key that. thing. It's something that we should have flipped, yeah. Oh, so, man. I love the technical. I, by the way, the uh, the spiritual advisor joke, September sixteenth, ninety eight. I just I love this so much. It is like, <laughs> is, God, amazing. Um, there's, the a, there's, a, 
I I had a I had a conversation uh, with Mr. Mulholland. Uh, He was on Facebook for a very short amount of time, and and I peppered him with questions. And then uh, he either blocked me or left. I think he left. Uh, At least I tell myself that. Um, But uh, no, I I I gave a joke to him um, that uh, I was. It's such a a, a screenshot of the conversation. I was so proud. It was a it was a a Times Square Elmo joke. And and anyway, um, they're trying to. It was really cold in New York. They were uh, the Times Square Elmos are rubbing each other to keep each other warm. His response: Great. Fax that back to me in 1997. Can't wait to put it on this show. I love that. Um, There's a joke that you guys told, though, in that same conversation I had with him that is one of my favorite jokes to this point. It makes me laugh every year or made me laugh every year that Dave would tell it. And I'm just curious if that was around when you were there. It was the... um, uh, and it's very similar to what you're talking about here because it put two things together, two things that are happening in New York at the same time or right around each other, the Westminster Dog Show and Fashion Week. And, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> we got bitches coming and going. And it just, I love that joke. Whose joke was that? I don't know if it was, it was, it, I, I uh, Mulholland said he thought it might've been, it, he thought it might've been yours. He thought it might've been Barry's. He wasn't sure. But anyway, it, it was around that time. Um, it doesn't sound like me. It doesn't sound like Chef, and it doesn't sound like the boys. I wonder if it was a freelance. It must have been. Well, I'm not going to say it wasn't. It could have been. It could have been one of them. But it yeah, sounds like, like every year, every year at the same time, Fashion Week in oh, New York, and then next year. week's the Westminster Dog Show. We got oh, yeah, bitches coming and going. Um, I love that. Actually, hey, you the know, boys what? wrote one about the Westminster uh, Kennel Show, and I'm going to get it wrong. Something like uh, it was. Uh, um, I saw something like I saw a Great Dane. Uh, tackle a poodle and steal its little doggy sweater. Uh, it was just something <laughs> funny about the steal its little doggy sweater. And then he said, uh, uh, "Oh yeah, uh, they have they're having the uh, Westminster Kennel Club show over at Madison Square Garden for three hours. <laughs> uh, for three hours, Spike Lee was taunting a German Shepherd or something because it was at the garden." <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Again, the connection, were... Spike Lee, always at Madison Square Garden, always in the front. Like, like there you go. The perfect, yep. by the way, the sick with the flu joke, January 12th, 2000. Um, <laughs> just crazy how this, this can happen. Now, I got to ask you, now you're, you're doing the mentalist stuff and I do, I, we're going to, we're going to finish with talking about what you're doing now. Um, I am curious when the mentalist stuff started, but, but at the end of the day, uh, I want to know about, cause you do a stage show now still, you're still doing standup. You're still presenting to people. You're still, we're talking about jokes that were written 20 fucking years ago right now that we still get a laugh out of and all that. When you're writing, I mean, when you're writing to tell things to, to, to current audiences, I don't know how standups do it without, you know, being able to watch other standups or writing for other standups and all that, and not be able to take some of these things from their subconscious and put it into their acts right now. How conscious of are you now when you are writing humorous things for people, um, not to reuse things, or 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 are you able to repurpose and reuse things? I'm super I fascinated repurpose, by this process. But it's funny. I have a friend, uh, one of the best writers I know, named Beth Armagita. She wrote for The Tonight Show while I wrote for Jay. Uh, she was there a lot longer than I was. She's yeah. also written um, for the Emmys, for the Oscars. She's like Steve Martin's personal writer. So like anytime you see him on an award show or whatever, or even on SNL, a lot of the stuff is Beth's. So wow. she's always calling me out on my page. I write a joke like this one I wrote the other day. She writes Dave joke. That's all. That's all she posts. Dave joke. And <laughs> I can't help it. So I this was one from a couple of days ago. I said, just in case he has a bit too much to drink on New Year's Eve, George Santos has hired a designated liar. 
And so she wrote Gabe Joe. You know, on this one too, I think, uh, I'm looking forward to January 1st. I've been waiting weeks to open my 2023 Jonas Brothers calendar. <laughs> That's a very Dave type of joke. You know, sure. it's not a standard punchline. Um, and this is a very old school joke. Mall Santas are now unemployed. Tough job. You work for a month under terrible conditions, then get let go. It's kind of like working for Twitter. You know, it's sort of that old school type of joke. Um, yep. This even more so. Holiday week and shoppers are in a crazed frenzy. In fact, over at Best Buy, I saw two Amish women fighting over a microwave. There you go. I mean, yep. that's, you know, and I can't help it. I, it's just, and I think that was a big part of me getting that job too, with, with no experience in TV was just that voice. And for whatever reason, maybe because I, uh, uh, you know, admired him so much was always in my head and yes. still is today. Yeah. Oh man, I, I dig this so much. Um, okay. So you do that job for three and a half, four years. Um, About there's some, most of the, well, four and a half years. Yeah. Some yep. big highlight moments. Um, I, I'm going to, we're going to talk about nine 11 in a little while. Cause that's near the end of your tenure. Uh, but I mean, at the end of the day, going through big events, do you remember some of the big events that happened, the big national oh, events boy. or international or even city events that happened that would then come in and dominate the monologues? Um, or or, two or the is biggest, it all a blur? Two of the biggest events of the latter part of the 20th century, well, one of the biggest events of the uh, ever, uh, both very um, tragic and both on my watch. One, the very first, I believe it was the day before I started. I know it was the weekend before I started. Might have been the day before if it was a Sunday. Princess Diana got killed. Oh Welcome my God. to writing jokes for David Letterman. I, the next day, I got to I got to be funny. He's got to be funny. And then, of course, the other one was 9-11. Yeah. Um, um, and I thought the way Dave handled it was absolutely incredible. Everybody kind of followed his lead on that. Absolutely. I always talk about how he's my Walter um, Cronkite. There's yes. a prime example of it yeah. right there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, there, there were benchmark big moments. Uh, um, I think there was a market crash or something where like where if something yeah. like that would happen in the middle of the day, we would like get on it. So our, we addressed it in the monologue that yeah, night. Yeah, the dot-com so, bubble burst at, during that time as well. So yeah, you right. guys would have definitely talked about that for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. His accountant jokes, like Dave used to make accountant jokes uh, and things like that all the time in the monologue. Um, right. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so so oh, Princess Diana uh, getting killed the week that you start, like that is, yeah. that's, talk about and the there curve. And there were no shows since she had passed, because it was on the, I'm talking about, I started on a Monday. So yeah. it was either Saturday or Sunday, and I think it was the day before. Um, but we, yeah. So that was being thrust really into the fire. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there were, you know, uh, events there that look, and that's true. Even now there are weeks where it's really hard or there's nothing in the news to really make fun of, or what there is, is too, too serious or too tragic. Yep. And then there are other weeks where there's comedy gold, you know, where it's just, you get a story that's, I mean, this guy Santos is is comedy gold, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, sure. <laughs> a few years ago, when OJ was in jail and he got busted stealing cookies from the prison cafeteria, I mean, that's that's a gift. Yeah. From the comedy gods, you know. Yep. Uh, 
I I wasn't on Dave's staff at that point. This was, I, I guess, had to be before 2016. But he had a joke that night. Uh, he was accused of stealing prison uh, cookies in the prison cafeteria. This time he left a trail of crumbs. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was, I wrote one. I said, OJ's going to, said he'll spend the rest of his life looking for the real elves. Um, <laughs> that was a joke I wrote. I don't remember which host I wrote it for. But yeah, it was like one of these, one of these things where, let me just dig into this. I got, you know, I'm sure yeah. I got 10 jokes here. So occasionally you get one of those. Um, yeah. yeah, Diana was killed on August 31st, uh, which was a Sunday, which means September 1st on the Monday is probably I started right the around day. the time. Oh, I remember it. I didn't want to say it for sure, but that's yeah. how I remember that it. Sounds, yeah. That sounds Thanks, right. Um, we haven't done one yet. It's going to happen at some point. Like we're still in our first year. We're 40 something episodes in, um, but we're definitely honing in on, and there's certain episodes we know we want to do. We know we want to do at least one, if not multiple episodes on Tony Mendez. Um, you know, there's, and there's all sorts of ways that we can do it and things that we can do. We want to devote an entire show onto the, the, the Tony Mendez show and things like that. Um, when was the first time that you met Tony? Was it your first day? Was it before? Day, yeah. Like, did you mean it during the interview? Uh, not during the interview, um, but my first day on the job, the first person I was introduced to uh, after Dave was Tony because it was going to be just me and him. We had a very, very close working relationship. Yeah. And in fact, quite often, if Dave didn't pick a joke that I thought was really funny, I would go to Tony and say, you know, what do you think? You know, right. and and uh, um, you know, comics and 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 writers will do that a lot. Um, uh, I, in fact, I recently wrote to you know Rita Rudner, the comic. Of course, absolutely. Rita's brilliant, and I hadn't spoken to her in many many years. And I saw her on social media, and I wrote to her at, uh, just you know how cool it was to see just to see her again. And I said what I admired so much about you, and I made note of it was I said I remember that when you had a new line even though you were much further along in your career than anybody at the club you there was no ego at all you would come to me and I I wasn't even I was an open micer and you would say what do you think of this what do you think of this you know you'd go yeah you would go by Dennis Wolfberg and Paul Reiser and these people but you would come by people like me because there was no shame in it you really wanted to get a great cross-section of, of opinion yes and so uh, I I love doing that. You know, when when I was putting together packets for shows, what I would do is after I wrote, you know, I'd always overwrite. I'd write forty jokes to get sure. you know the ten I needed for the packet. I would send it to two late night writers who I really really respected, and I would say, you know, if you don't like it at all, don't put anything. If you like a joke, put a check, and if you really like it, put two. And if I saw that they both put two checks by a joke by, that I really like, that's in the packet. You're on to something. Yep. Uh, and if there were two checks in both of them and I thought it was just okay, more often than not, I would go with their opinion than both having the same opinion, two against one. So, yep. yeah. Uh, collaboration, in my opinion, uh, you know, I, we host the Men's Mental Wellness Podcast as well. I do that. And, and that's where I kind of got my podcasting chops if I if I do have any. Um, and we talk about this a lot. Um a lot of men these days live in their own little silos and they, and they, and they don't talk about things. And, and the idea of, of a lot of these life coaches and therapists and stuff that we've had on is how, is how powerful collaboration is. 
and 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 how uh, in many in many aspects, including team sports and all of these other places, collaboration actually kicks the crap out of competition in many ways, um, especially when you're collaborating with people for something like and again, like what you guys were trying to do, the trenches that you were in. Um, and Tony also had a unique perspective, knowing Dave's voice and knowing this, like, you know, you being separated off from the rest of the writers in your own kind of little silo here. Um, you know, and, and Tony's the guy holding the cards. Tony's the guy seeing, um, you know, and, and even, I want to get to the, to the cue cards here in a second too, because I think that's, I know you've got, um, uh, you know, comparisons, you know, the Johnny Carson cue card versus the David Letterman cue card and, 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 and you've what seen it, my cue cards, right? I have a few of them. Well, and I was hoping that you might bring some of them out for this, for oh, our viewers yeah. to see, uh, um, you know, because even the, 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 the cadence of the cue cards, um, important and, and the these are, these are things up. that no one else can talk about. Um, you know, we want to have chef on the show here. He's kind of, he's kind of squeamish about it. Um, you know, you're one of these people that can, can really shed light on this. Um, you know, so you and Tony would have had a really good working relationship because you got the whole joke and, and are you having to explain certain emphasis on the certain words or things like that, that go on the card or like party Tony, ice, you know, does Tony, he know to put party ice on there? Yes. Not only that, but he knows how to break up a sentence and you'll see even if though you it's just part of the joke, you'll be able to read the joke straight through. He was brilliant at that. I would never try to uh, enter into his territory once in a blue moon. And I really mean maybe twice in all my years there. Okay. Did I accentuate a word by bolding it or something? But I hated doing that. The very first time I submitted to Bill Maher, your first time. Yeah. Um, I get a call from the executive producer and I can't even believe I did this. He says, uh, you know how you put an exclamation point after at the end of every joke? And I said, yeah. He goes, don't do that. He <laughs> said, Bill knows if it's funny or not. I was like, ah, oh, fuck. Okay. Um, I never did That's that. That's awesome though. That's you cutting your teeth. Like those are the little things yeah, that but you that don't necessarily think about, right? Like that, sh that should have been obvious. I was, you know, I just didn't know. I think I, I didn't know. And, and uh, I guess maybe, <laughs> I don't know. I thought there was, yeah, this is fine. I don't know. It was really stupid. But um, but yes, what you wouldn't know, and I do have a lot of people, my students asking me, is it okay to bold or italicize or underline? I said, try if you can not to do it. If it is absolutely not necessary. I mean, if, if there's any reason that you can not do it, don't do it. Yeah. Because you're telling them this is the funny part. Come in on this. You're not giving, you shouldn't be giving them acting tips. You know. Right. Yeah. Right. Because it's them using their voice to, but it's you writing in their voice. So I see it. I see it both ways. Um, I saw Dave live last May when he was doing his, um, he was at the, uh, at the Fonda theater doing um, the, the, the Netflix is a joke comedy festival. He had his little uh, uh, my, um, that's my time with David Letterman. So he had, you know, for example, Brian Simpson, you know, Dave comes out, does a monologue goes and sits down, Brian Simpson comes out, does 10 minutes, goes and sits with Dave for some panel, you know, and he did that three times that night. Um, when he was doing his monologue, Gabe, I swear I was fascinated. I was in the third row and I wanted to turn around and 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 for one of his sets, because I saw three of his sets, I wanted to turn around and watch the teleprompter because he had it on a teleprompter and it was just like Inky's cadence used to be, you know, like certain words, that kind of a thing. And because Dave is such a wordsmith, it fascinated me. The words that were on there versus the words that he would fill in that weren't there 
and how many of them were still very clever words or the cadence of it. It was, it was fascinating to me. How long did it take you to kind of figure that out? Well, I guess, I guess you had it already when you got the job. There's a lot of stuff I just kind of instinctively knew. And that's why, you know, I mean, my, my career as a monologue writer, you know, I mean, I did stand up, I did stand up for 16 years and I got in the headline, but nobody knew I was, I wasn't a household name. I wasn't on the Tonight Show. Yeah. And yet within monologue writing very, very fast things happen. So here's a skill I didn't know that I had that was stronger than the skill that I thought I was, you know, that, that I was born with and destined to uh, become, you know, the next great comic. And that didn't happen. But there's something about monologue that just and, and I think it's also because it's purely observational. Stand up is half about who you are. You know, and there are co- there are stand up comics that really are not very good writers if you deconstruct what they're doing. But they're such great performers on stage. Yes. It makes up for their lack uh, of writing. And then or there are a guys storyteller like or something like that. And there's a guy like Seinfeld who's such a great writer and really is that well, we don't know who Jerry is. We still don't really know who Jerry is personality wise, yep. but it doesn't matter because he's so funny. Then you have generational comics like George Carlin and Pryor. Um, or less than a generation uh, who have brought it all together, who are incredible actors and, you know, rubber faces and incredible writers too, you know? Um, So for me, I was never comfortable really peeling back the layers and revealing my soul. And so I think that stopped me in standup, if I'm to be honest with myself and why I took to monologue writing better, because it was all looking outward, you know? Oh, that's really interesting. So the jokes really have to be much stronger for monologue than they do for stand-up because you're taking the 50% of it out of it, you being able to sell it. So the joke has to read funny on paper the first time. So the first thing I kind of instinctively knew was to keep it short. Like I always tell my students three lines or less on the page. And the one thing I see Dave do that I've never seen, and you just basically mentioned it, is he can stray from a three-line joke and make it 20 or 30 seconds long and he will hit that scripted punchline yeah. perfectly. There you he will go. Find his way back and hit it perfectly. Other yes. guys can't do it. No, I, you know. And the other thing is, is Dave had a structure to his monologue, a story arc, which I've never seen another host, including Johnny Carson, have. He would find the closing joke, which the reason we went to Monica is a dirty joke is always going to get a bigger laugh on TV because it's forbidden on network. But yes. everybody knew it was about a blowjob, you, you know. So. Yep. Um, we would always close with a borderline Jew. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm Jewish. I can make I can make that slip. I'm Jewish. Uh, um, a borderline uh, blue joke, and um, so we would find that, and then that would be joke number eight, and then he would usually pair up joke six and seven. Uh, you know, like if one was about Clinton, maybe the next was about Gore, and then uh, uh, jokes three and four, and then joke one and two was the, I was walking to work through Central Park today, so a squirrel, you know, and right away the idea of him walking to work through Central Park, people start giggling. Oh yeah, I love when he talked about being on the subway. I thought that was the the cab drivers, but there was an arc to the monologue. No, every every host is like every stand-up comic. Let's see what else is going on. You'd never heard Dave do that. No. No, you yeah. didn't. Yeah. Um, 
I want to I want to do a quick aside here. I don't know if this is true or not because you mentioned Carlin. You mentioned the time he took with you, and it just occurred to me, uh, and it was right around the time that you were working for Dave too. Gary Shandling was doing Larry, Larry Sanders at that point. Um, right. One of the people who has uh, an instrumental uh, had a, an instrumental um, uh, place in Gary's heart was George Carlin as well. You know, Gary wrote some stuff down legendarily. This before he was anything, and 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 handed it to Carlin, and Carlin kind of went through it line by line with him and all of that. Uh, did you ever meet Gary Shandling? throughout your you know i did Larry not Sanders. you didn't okay did um no. just curious about that but but he same thing with george carlin i i, I love the echo there um yeah. george carlin's yeah. a guy who again built into young comics just like you want to build into young comics um have any uh the any only other time i the only time i'm sorry i just have go to ahead no, no no i met please. carlin because i went up to the dressing room you know which was on the top floor in the uh uh in that little building the next to theater yep. uh only only because of the whole thing you know with the letter and his mom i had to tell him because he's absolutely you know, where i ended up and the only other time i went up top was to meet don rickles um and oh. uh, i forgot if it was Gaines or somebody introduced me to him and said uh uh this is don don uh this is a head monologue writer for uh uh gabe and and rickles hi nice to meet you he said so you write all the jokes at the top of the show I go. said, yeah. yep. I was, and he goes, that explains it. <laughs> perfect. 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 Thank you. Nothing, like, that's nothing a, better than being insulted by Don Rickles. The best. How many years later are you talking about it? Uh, by the way, it was probably June 5th, 98 when you met Carlin. Um, that was when he did an appearance on the show. So probably that yeah, date that's, there. That's it. Um, I, I love that. Now, now your students and, and, and uh, I just, I love listening to a teacher talk about the pride of their students, that kind of a thing. Um, have you taught any notables that the, the rest of the public might know about that, uh, you know, you've helped give them some sage advice if, or, or, or uh, you know, who, who, who are some people that you've, you've worked with? Well, um, I've had a number, a number of Emmy winners uh, in my class, but I had my first Oscar winner this year. Uh, but again, you know, these are writers, so I don't know if you can say household names necessarily, you know, yep. it's not... Um, but I had a student named Trevon Free. In fact, he he's so big as a writer that he was a guest on Jimmy Kimmel, like a, a sit-down guest. Trevon um, took my class, and he was great. I mean, it was a stand-up, but he just got he got he got it right away, and he got hired by The Daily Show with all the way going back to Colbert. Uh, wow. Then he stayed there uh, when Colbert. Um, Left. Wait, was it was uh, it Daily Show with Stewart or was I'm it the sorry, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm report of, of uh, uh, Stewart. I'm thinking of Stewart. Was, okay. he yep. Daily Show. Then when Stewart left, he stayed with the show. Then he wrote for Samantha B. He, wow. Then he wrote for a ton of shows. And then he wrote a short called um, Two Distant Strangers. And it was about a cop shooting the same black guy every. It was basically Groundhog Day, but <laughs> with the premise that. A cop shooting the same black guy every day. Oh, my um, God. It won the Academy Award, Best Short. And so that was, you know, that was. It, I love seeing my students do well and end up on shows. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I've, I, I'm trying to think. If I think of over the years, I have had a couple people that became name comics because I taught stand-up, too. Or uh, even are able to, and, and even the ones that are able to make a living at it. And I mean, it's, 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 oh, yeah, in my opinion, yeah. it's one of the most noblest pursuits. I look, I've done stand up now. I, again, I'm, I'm kind of like, um, I, I shouldn't say it like this. Dave 
Dave learned to do stand up because he needed to have the discipline under his belt to do what he really wanted to do. Uh, last year, when the when the mask all started to come off and all that, I went out to do the same thing. I wanted to get the skill under my belt a little bit, so I was comfortable with it and learning. I look at what's and I and I have a lot of friends who are stand ups on a local level. Some of them who are getting bigger and all that. I adore hanging out with stand-ups um if, if if there's a party going on and there's a couple stand-ups in the corner i i i beeline to them um i love just the way that all the different stand-ups think completely unique yet similar in the sense that uh how in their uniqueness if that makes any sense whatsoever it's i think it'll make sense to you i don't know if, uh you know it'll, it'll, course, it'll come across absolutely. properly. Yeah. yeah it's just the creative minds and things like that um and so and even yeah. people being able to do that for a living and you helping them being able to do that because they don't feel like they work a day in their life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel that way, but, but, you know, that's kind of, it's, that's, I, I don't want to say it's over with, but it's over in the sense that when I started in the early eighties uh, and I became a feature act by the mid eighties, you know, and keep in mind how cheap things were then um, I was making 800 a week as a feature act. Yeah, that doesn't exist anymore. Nope. If you were a headliner, you were and you were a completely unknown headliner, just some yep. guy from New Jersey that had a you know a hack. They were making three thousand a headline for the week. Yep. Um, now I was just talking to a guy who's a really big act at the Comedy Cellar, and he said, he said I do the ships because comedy clubs that I used to make three four thousand in now want to pay me fifteen hundred and want me to pay my own airfare out yep. of the fifteen hundred. Yeah. You know, the shoots I make 3,000, 3,500 a week. Why wouldn't I do it? And Absolutely. that's what has happened a lot. The acts that can made the transition. Some of the, a lot of them became motivational speakers. Yeah. Uh, because it's a, you know, they had the skill. And a lot of them became, uh, you know, the, all the guys that said in the 80s and 90s, I'll never be a boat act. That's too hack. I'll never be a boat act. Ended up that's where they ended up because not that it's a bad thing. They're making well over six figures, not over, but in the, you know, yep. making a couple hundred grand a year, just doing ships. Yeah. Um, so that, that has all changed. I want to be a comic and I can make a living within a couple of, no, it doesn't work that way anymore. Unfortunately, mo a lot of the great comics, young comics I know now have day jobs because they have to. And that was something you didn't have to do back when I was doing this. No, it's the opposite. It's 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 you've got the day job so you can get out uh, and do as much stand up as you can so you can then get out of the day job and then and then build it up. But yeah, it's 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 in flux. There's no question. But in many in many ways, in my opinion, there's never been a better time to be a stand up because it's uh, uh, Ari Shafir said this. It's dangerous again um, with the culture doing what it's been doing and the pendulum swinging as far as it has in multiple directions. You've got <laughs> the left and the right both wanting to censor people for different reasons and 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 cancel culture and all this sort of stuff. Stand up in many ways is dangerous again, and and some of the stuff that's out there is just dynamite. I love. Uh, some of the stuff that we've seen the last couple of years. I do too. I, I don't, I don't know if the cultural shift and the cancellation um, making it more dangerous is a good thing. I do. Okay. Yes, it could be dangerous, but if you know that, that, that it's dangerous because you could get a reaction of that's not funny um, or you can't talk about that. I don't think that's productive to stand up. I, I don't mean to argue. I'm just telling no, you. No, 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 no. I want to hear your opinion. I on don't this. think. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't think that's a healthy thing at all. 
Um, um, it does make it more challenging, um, definitely. But, you know, I was surprised uh, in uh, uh, some comic uh, told me that another comic told him that something was really uh, um, uh, racist that was not at all. Actually, it was about something Jewish, and I'm sensitive to that stuff. Sure. Um, but I did not find it offensive. And the fact that it, it, it scares me when comics are telling other comics, no, you've crossed the line. No, you can't do that. You shouldn't right. say that. That's, that's, it's bad enough that, you know, muggles say that. And comics start telling each other that it, it just is. Uh, yeah, I, I it's um, a problem. Uh, so there is an element of risk that if you uh, approach certain topics, people may not be accepting and may may, you know, get their dander up because of it. Um, but uh, I don't think it's helpful. To the art like i got a question for you again your opinion on this to me is 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 unique and and at at uh at worst expert <laughs> um I, I i would say um steven weiner who was a a writer on uh late night he was one of the original uh he was the guy that came up with the glass breaking he and uh and carl his partner carl they discovered calvert deforest we've talked about this um there is an adage with many stand-ups that if it's funny as long as it's funny everything anything goes but it has to be funny you can go any direction you want to as long as it's funny enough and if it's funny enough all will be forgiven he I actually that, disagreed but... with that uh that that statement what do you think about that adage i agree with it 100 percent. yeah there I, we go. I and look mel brooks did a musical about nazis and the majority of the audience every night was jewish and yeah. anybody else doing humor about that they'd probably not only not go pay $200 to see it, they'd be incredibly insulted. You know, a great friend of mine was the, the late comic Robert Schimmel. And Robert could talk about anything. I mean, he did a whole album about cancer. Granted, he had cancer, which made it more acceptable. Yep. But he would talk about anything because of the way he approached it, that he was sort of the fool at the end of the day. Like he does this whole bit about, he questions how people in wheelchairs can have sex. He doesn't understand it. He said, you know, and, and people could get upset. He said, but he ends the bit so cleverly. He said, and I'm sure it's true. He said, and I walk out of the theater. He said, as I'm walking out, I see the crowd part like the Red Sea. And this guy in a wheelchair comes approaching me. And I'm thinking, oh, fuck. And he said, uh, um, um, you know that thing you did about how people in wheelchairs can't make love? And I, he said, I, I don't even know what to think at this point. I just want to crawl under a rock somewhere. And I said, yeah. And he said, before I could say, I'm sorry, the guy says to me, well, you should know that my wife and I actually have 65 ways that we can make love. And Schimmel said, and then I felt really bad because my wife and I only have two. <laughs> and one of them, she doesn't even need me in the room. <laughs> oh, so I love the extra one. It's like a combination. We got the left and then the oh, right. Absolutely. The one, two. But by ending with that, He's now the fool. He's now the idiot. That guy is the cool guy. He's the one who has 65 ways of getting laid. And yep. so it's the way you approach it. You know, like I work a lot with um, uh, a comic named Emma Willman. I don't know if you know Emma. I she's one of the funniest heard, but comics looking today. Um, uh, she's a gay comic, not telling tales out of school. That's her bit. Uh, she's sure. a gay comic. Uh, short blonde hair, does a bit about looking like Ellen. But she, the way she approaches being gay 
is the most clever way I've ever heard any comic talk about it. Because what she does is she can get the most homophobic redneck in the room to love her and get on her side. So check out this bit. Um, I work with her a lot. And what's great is I don't work with her really as a teacher, yeah. even though we do sessions, because I'm all I'm all about structure and Emma is all about the funny. I could never be half as funny as her as a comic. Oh, but that's cool. That's that collaboration not, we're talking about. But she needs structure. Yeah. yeah. So to get, but this is entirely her. She said, um, she said, you know, my father's very old fashioned. Uh, when I came out to him, he said, he said to me, he said, so Emma, tell me, uh, in a relationship, are you the um are you the man <laughs> one or the woman one? And she said, and I got really offended, you know, because obviously I'm the man one. <laughs> that's, that's joke number one that's joke number one so now people feel okay saying that yeah because she's okay and that wants to be known as the man one she said she said i'm the man one i'm the man one and then she says and this is the brilliant part she said then she says um one time a friend of mine tried to fix me up with another man one and i got really homophobic i was suddenly like some southern senator conservative senator i was like you can't have two man ones you gotta have a man one a woman one like the bible says <laughs> and what's so brilliant about that is it gets everybody that actually does think like that on her side you know what i mean it's such a brilliant way to handle it and um and i know emma and she actually does think that way she doesn't want to be seen with anybody butch you know it's really funny it's it's just really endearing and adorable and if you get a chance to see her on facebook absolutely i'm glad we're shouting you out here on this show this is great oh um, so great i i uh I, I appreciate your time very 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 much and I, i'm mindful no of it um you know i'm i'm but i'm also going to ask you to come back at some point and we're gonna like i'm gonna assemble sure. other questions and things like that from the time that this you were fun. there this was a couple there's a couple places I do want to quickly go before uh, we finish okay. off. Um, how long after you left Letterman did you go to work for The Tonight Show? Um, uh, Letterman 01, Tonight Show 05, four, yeah. four years. Four years, so okay. So in between, I created, uh, I don't even know if I should say this, I co-created co a show, well, actually, I created a show called Mind of Encia with Robert Morton, who I had never met. Which was so weird because oh, he that's saw really comic weird. in New York. He never saw me all those years. And he never saw me at Letterman because I was there with Rob Burnett. And one day he calls me from California. He said, I can't believe we've never met, never worked together. Uh, you know, I got this guy, Carlos Mencia. We wanted to do a show with him um, for Comedy Central. We're doing a live presentation pilot. We're yeah. thinking of you, the head writer. You know, and I started pitching ideas. They liked it. They flew me out to LA. And while, uh, uh, and so I did that. that and when I, finished working on the presentation pilot. We only had three weeks to put it together. I get there and I say to Carlos and Bob Morton, so what's the concept for the show? And they point to a whiteboard that's completely blank. And I said, there, we got three weeks. So we came up with the show in three weeks. And, and, um, and you know, during after, right after that, I got an offer from The Tonight Show just to do a test week right. with the show. So I did a test week. And then I found out Mencia got greenlit. Uh, and then I got an offer from the tonight show. Oh, wow. uh, and it's, how do you say no to the tonight show? You know, I mean, so in I, the room I, I went, or for the model, like the monologue is that's Jay. No, right? no. Like, in the room, in the room. In the room. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I have commercial parodies. I have jaywalkings. I have sketches. So now I have a, you know, a much more rounded resume. And in fact, I mean, it's really fun because even at my advanced age, I got to do something new this year. I'm, I'm, I'm producing a show knock wood it'll get renewed again called josh gates tonight on discovery josh 
host their big show called Expedition Unknown. He's like oh, sort of the face. Okay, yeah, discovery. yeah, yeah. Yeah, with the adventurer's hat, he's like an adventurer, but he's really funny, really funny. And so uh, we did a bit on uh, whatever the theme of Expedition Unknown is, we carry through to our talk show. So it's theme based. And one right. was Secret Societies about the Knights Templar and so forth. So our show was on Secret Societies. And when we do a field piece every show, I thought, you know what? I'm in a very small secret group of mentalists called the Elders. How about, and I said to Josh, how about we do the show in this group? He said, I love it. I said, he said, you know, I used to be a waiter at the Magic Castle. I'm like, you're kidding me. I said, I don't work the Magic Castle, magicians and mentalists, sort of like the Crips and the Bloods. Yeah. I said, but, I said, but it would be a great place to shoot. He said, I would love to shoot at the castle. So I got to not only do it, I got to, I got to do a demonstration for him on camera. Yeah. I acted on the show as four different characters on that same show. I produced it and I directed that segment at the castle. My first time directing in my 42 years in entertainment, directing television, that is. So, you know, it, it was great. It was, oh, I've never been awesome. that involved with, with one episode of a show because there were only two of us. We had to write and produce entire episodes. But in addition to that, you know, cause I was an actor and it's, it is cable. Uh, I got to act and, you know, and then <laughs> I, I knew how to shoot the, these mentalism performances, you know, you got to, I had a very specific way that I wanted it shot. So I got to, to do all that and, you know, do the setup and everything. So yeah, it was, it was thrilling. Dave, uh, it's like, it's, it's like you're a pro, uh, cause you are one. Um, you segued so beautifully into this. The next time you're on, we'll talk a little bit more about the tonight show and some of the things It's ironic yeah. that some of the things that you worked on in the tonight show are the things that if somebody would have said that some of these elements of the Tonight Show were Letterman-esque, jaywalking and some of these other things would have been, I, I think, uh, in that category for sure. Uh, but we'll do that another day. How and when and how did you get into mentalism? When did this happen? Because it's such a fascinating on, form of entertainment. When I first got hired at Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher. Um, a long time ago. Uh, no, no, not when I first. Oh, okay. When I got hired, which when I came out here in 2000 and two okay so right after letterman i got yeah. incorrect and now i didn't have to uh it was so funny because now i had four years of that under my belt they hired me for abc when i couldn't get hired for comedy central because i had you know no experience whatever uh <laughs> and they moved out here so um the executive producer of the show said you know um he was into magic and i was never really that into magic i never did sleight of hand or anything i could do a few card tricks but yeah. never really got into it um and i'd seen too many bad magicians on the road over the years as a comic he said you know my cousin is one of the most esteemed mentalists in the world you he does a show at the duke and duchess of windsor suite at the waldorf and it's 250 bucks a ticket there are only 30 oh. people you sit right on top of them he said but i can get you and your wife in for free if you want to go see him i said yeah sure i'll go see him and he was doing stuff mind reading thought reading stuff and persuasion stuff i had never seen before yeah. and it was like that light bulb going off like when i first listened to my car first carlin album it's like i have to learn how to do this and so i probably have you know hundreds and hundreds of books and and videos and tutorials and I have a couple of mentors and so I started learning basically certain pillars of mentalism uh called reading and persuasion and hypnosis and parts of magic as well um sure. uh and misdirection but to me the most interesting part of mentalism is the purely psychological stuff I yeah. love that 
And uh, that's stuff that I wish I could do over the over the internet, but I have to be in the room like 80, not more than that, 90% of my, what I can do is taken away by not being there in terms yeah, of- Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, well, technologically, my wife and I, for example, will watch America's Got Talent. And, yeah. and inevitably when you watch America's Got Talent, there's gonna be one or two uh, mentalism acts that make it and 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 start to you know, get multiple viewings. It seems like the technology- both for that and for um, for illusionists as well, is a nice little cherry on top and, and, and technology moving forward the way it has. You can do some cool things to accent or to augment what you're already doing, uh, but it does very much seem to be, with the mentalism, respect to that, um, classic, very, very classic um uh techniques am i am i am i right with that or is technology completely you're you're, abs you're you're absolutely right okay in terms of how it revolutionized magic and mentalism with you know microprocessors and all of that but the problem is is there's so much exposure people know how certain devices are used and i don't want right. to don't need to get into it but no, you know no, no. people know about stuff that sends signals to something else so Ironically, many mentalists, including myself, have gone back to using what we call billets, which are just pieces of paper, pads, Sharpie markers, and, you know, and coin envelopes and rubber bands, just stuff yep. that, where, you know, there's a saying that, that, you know, magicians like to shop at magic stores and mentalists like to shop at Staples. And it's true. <laughs> I mean, you know, so a lot of the stuff that, was exposed that I did early, especially in my mentalism on stage mentalism career, because electronics do make for miracles uh, much easier. Yeah. I, I I now am going to much more rudimentary stuff um, that has no explanation uh, of, you know, when I give somebody a golf pencil and, and a piece of index card and a coin envelope, and I say, write something down, they know that it's not sending a signal to me because it's literally a single piece of paper. It's not a yep. pad that you have some, you know, so I, I, I do that. And um, uh, so, yes, yeah, so it revolutionized it in a good way, but got overexposed in a way that, and maybe that's, that's probably a good thing where they couldn't rely on that anymore. And they, sure. they really have to get back to some of the old methods. Well, we've yeah. uh, we've talked to I, I'm buds with uh, Jeff Altman now. We talk about that, and he feels the exact same way about about his side of the coin. You know, he loves the close up magic, and he's, and he's, uh, yeah, that's that's, that's the so it makes sense to me. To me, those are similar uh, dispositions. Um, Gabe, if okay, so so you're doing stuff on cruise ships. You're do you're you're bookable. Uh, so let's talk about that. If 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 what are you bookable for? Are you bookable bookable just for the mentalism for for stand up as well? Do you have a stand up workshops going on? If people want to uh, attach themselves to you or follow you, uh, reach out to you. What are the best ways to do that? Okay, so there's three ways to do it. If they want to take a class, I teach at Flappers Comedy Club in Burbank, and they have a university, a whole university of classes from screenwriting to marketing to and I uh I taught um uh their uh, late night writing class for the last 15 years but they just started a level one and two level one being pretty much all monologue level two everything desk pieces all that yep. uh I got I brought in the guy to he teach level one one of the few people that I feel really confident with a guy named Peter Charkalis who used to fax me at Letterman and then I helped him get on Kilborn, and he's just a joke machine. He can mm -hmm. just crank it out. He understands it all. 
So he took over to level one. I'm now teaching level two, except for the upcoming semester where I'll be teaching level one. I don't really do ships. I do it a couple of times a year if I want to take a vacation and get yeah. paid for it. Because you work, I work these lines, the really kind of exclusive lines that they're not thousands of people. There are only a few hundred. So I only have to do one show. So I'm working 45 minutes and I'm going to, you know, whatever. Oh yeah, it was a good gig. When you and I were going back and forth where you got that one kind of suddenly, uh, holy cow, good gig, Gabe. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, they're they're great gigs. You were, like I said, one show um, and, you know, teaching and then writing the Josh Gates thing. Uh, then after that, I worked on uh, a talk show pilot. We shot four shows and they're going to cut it to one. I can't really talk about it yet. Okay. But it was executive produced by Eddie Feldman, who was Dennis Miller's EP all those years. Wow. Um, so, uh, but in any case, so I go, yeah. And and believe it or not, I in terms of performing gigs, I probably do more mentalism gigs than anything. Uh, I do, obviously, I do stand up when when called for it. The, sure. So I have the classes at Flappers, if you want a classroom situation. I work privately with monologue writers if you have a little bit of experience or if you've tried your hand at late night for a while, you know, private is fine. If you've never tried it before, I would say take level one, whether it's me or Peter Charkalis, you need to have taken level one before you take level two yeah. uh, flappers. Um, and in terms of stand up, that I will only teach privately now. Gotcha. Um, and, and if people want to reach out to you, where do they, where do they reach out? Just uh, reach out to me at Gableson uh, on uh, Twitter or on um, uh, Instagram. Um, and yeah, I might as well, I'll give you my, uh, my email is sure. uh, GabeWriter Gabe at Yahoo.com. Yes, still a Yahoo holdout. G-A-B-E <laughs> and then the word writer, Gabe Writer. Yep. I am. Um, uh... I, I I hate that uh, that we've got to end this, but we've got to do. I, I just uh, I could do this all night. Like I literally am the Energizer Bunny. Me too. And for a moment, I'm fascinated. Oh, <laughs> there's an old Letterman line. I wish we could do this all night. I me too. And for a moment, I thought we had. Um, <laughs> you always used to say that. Uh, uh, so yeah, so we'll do cue cards next time. There's something we can do. Oh next. yeah. Okay. We can do cue cards next time. That'll, that'll be fine. Um, by sure. the way, Don Giller is still on AOL. So you're in good company being a Yahoo holdout. Um, I, uh, I'm going to say our, uh, my goodbye. Pri I'm going to, I'm going to move it over here and do a quick outro and then we can say, I'll stop, hit stop. And then we'll do our, uh, our goodbye privately. Uh, one of the things I am going to do though, is mention that our only sponsor is Rupert G and the hello deli. Um, they're our only sponsor for the show. I I'm, I'm keeping ourselves pure as I like to say because i am hoping one day that walter and company uh will will come forward and say okay we're gonna make you we're gonna deputize you and make you official so i'm not i'm not doing any other sponsorship but rupert however rupert's uh, a great if you have guy any, i love rupert great guy one of the nicest guys in the entire world yeah um yeah. i'm sure you ate at the hello deli back in the day All many the time. many times rupert and may yeah. and their team um if you want any uh, late show with david letterman merchandise he's the only official place you can get it go to hello-deli.com um Oh, I guess, yeah, there's one of the last question there. Uh, has Walter and them uh, reached out to you yet for favorite moment segment? No, no. Oh, okay. No. Uh, well, yeah. let's see if we can make that happen um, because yours would be one that's, uh, in my opinion, um, you know, very unique because your favorite moments would be all kind of monologue moments. And that's a that's a neat yeah. idea for the official channel to do that. Um, I'm going to say a quick goodbye. I would, I would assume that Bill might have covered that though. Chef, I don't know if he's done it yet, but if he has. Uh, Bill's he, he favorite moments weren't? monologue moments i don't think yeah it's got me 
Oh, now you got me. Well, we got to go back. I saw the one with him with with the cookie where he's picking pieces out of the cookie. That was really funny. (laughs) Yeah. He, oh, I, I can't, I, I really, I've talked with him privately a little bit. I would love to have him on here and, 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 uh, um, be the yang to your yin on this here. Cause, uh, you know, again, it takes a special kind of person to, to have that dynamic. I mean, of all the people that worked with Dave, uh, for as many years as they did, some of them, you know, three decades plus, you have spent more time, more face time with David Letterman than a lot of these staffers who worked with him for decades. Um, just a fascinating uh, uh, thing. I, I just appreciate you opening up for the things that you can talk about. And you're, sure. uh, I appreciate the fact this show is very, very, um, you know, we want to be, uh, you know, we don't talk about gossip or scandal or any of that stuff on here. It's just the highlights, the positive stuff. I appreciate that that you have come on here and talked about some of these uh, these amazing highlights. Gabe, thank you so much for being a guest on the Letterman Podcast. Thank you so much. This was a blast. And you are a great podcast host. You do something that Dave was great at, which is, and not to not that I have anything great to say, but you really listen and you're, you don't try to interject too much. Um, which is very rare among podcasters, just not not trying to interject. You know, I watched a Dave interview where I, and it was somebody you wouldn't think was interesting, some actor that you would think would be boring, but they were incredibly entertaining, telling a great story. And Dave was silent for almost the entire six minutes. It was amazing. It was oh. amazing to see. Um, you, uh, but anyway, I want to thank you, you and I want to thank Don as well. Have absolutely. Talk, that was the most impressive thing. I mean, it's like in a baseball game. Oh, yeah, and in 1976, he was on second base in the third inning. Wow. Very impressive. It's uh, it's it's a, it's a pleasure for me. Um, you know what? I, I'll just I'll say the goodbye with you here. Fuck it. This is this is great. I just appreciate that. You have no idea how much I appreciate hearing that. Uh, with the Zoom technology, sometimes I talk over people accidentally, but it's this podcast. I was when it comes to I've got this little documentary that's being shot. Oh, here. Oh, no way. There he is, hey Don, the man, the legend. Oh, Don again. we actually got an appearance from Don Giller. This is this that's big for me. Um, yeah, that's big having him there. Thank you for that wave, Don. I uh, I I gotta tell you, um, there's a little documentary up here in Canada being being kind of made about the unlikely host. It's called the unlikely host of the Letterman Podcast, and it's all about imposter syndrome. It's it's about, um, uh, you know. Uh, this is a dream for me. Uh, whether or not it ever turns into anything that's monetized, it does not matter. I've already won. Like conversations like this today, Gabe, I swear to God, it's a dream come true for me. It's like you meet in Carlin. It's like, it's just, it's so wow. fascinating to me. And I love it so much. The ironic part is I hate watching myself, but I've been waiting for well over a decade. I was an early adopter of podcasts, Kevin Smith, um, you know, Corolla too, but Kevin Smith was my, you know, right at the very beginning. And I've been waiting for this Letterman podcast to come out. So here's the irony, the sickening irony. I hate watching myself, but this podcast to me is so important and, and it's so fascinating. It's easy to listen for me because you guys are just, you're blowing my mind with this stuff. This is the show that I've been waiting for. The ironic part is I have to sit through watching myself, which I hate uh, to get to this, but this is the magic to me. And I just, thank you for saying that. I, you made my Absolutely. week. You're <laughs> terrific at it. You're really oh, great at it. Oh man. And, thank and, you so. As you probably know, and I don't have to tell you, every performer hates watching themselves. Everyone. Uh, yes. I've definitely logically talked my way out of that. 
the worthiness part is still not quite there. I'm trying to embrace it as much as I can. And who knows what it turns into? I don't know, but I just know that I'm having a great time. Um, Gabe, you are, you are a consummate teacher. You can tell the encouragement. I appreciate that. Um, one of the only monologue writers for David Letterman, Gabe Abelson, uh, go and find him at Gableson. Um, and, uh, I just appreciate you so much. That is another episode of the Letterman podcast with Mike Chisholm. Coincidentally, I am Mike Chisholm. Thank you. And good night. Overcoat and underpants. <laughs>